The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but boy, do we have a really, really cool show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. Um, sun's finally out again in LA. It's been been a bit up and down. <laughs> yeah, the weather's been a but, bit funny. Yeah, but. really looking forward to this. Quick shout out to everyone tuning in through the TuneIn app on the independent.fm. If you are catching this as the podcasted version of the show, hello to you. And I really want to send another big shout out to everyone on the uh, Live Me chat room. Uh, I hope everyone's having a great Sunday evening. And uh, buckle up, folks, because we have a great topic to discuss with our guests. So, Genevieve, honestly, without further ado, I'm just going to zip it up, throw it to you. All right. Well, um, we have Dr. Robert Schock on the show tonight, as Frank did mention earlier. He's a full-time faculty member at the College of General Studies at Boston University, and that's since 1984, as well as a recipient of its Patent Richter Award for Interdisciplinary Teaching. He earned his PhD in geology and geophysics at Yale in 1983. He also holds a Master of Science and Master of Philosophy in geology and geophysics from Yale, as well as degrees in anthropology and geology from George Washington University. Dr. Schock is a researcher of ancient civilizations and has received various awards in the field. In the early 90s, he stunned the world with his first revolutionary research that recast the date of the Great Sphinx of Egypt to a period thousands of years earlier than its standard attribution. One of his more recent publications, namely Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, puts forth an incredibly convincing theory as to how such ancient civilizations may have come to their demise. Dr. Schock has been quoted extensively in the media for his work on ancient cultures and monuments around the globe. And his research has been instrumental in spurring renewed attention to the interrelationships between geological and astronomical phenomena, natural catastrophes, and the early history of civilization. He has appeared on numerous radio and television shows and is featured in the Emmy-winning documentary, The Mystery of the Sphinx. Now, besides his academic and scholarly studies, Dr. Schock is an active environmental advocate who stresses a pragmatic, hands-on approach. He has helped found a local community land trust devoted to protecting land from harmful development, serving on its board of directors for many years. And despite acknowledging that our sun is a major driver of climate on the planet, Dr. Schock takes an active part in green politics as well. For over a decade, he served as an elected member of his local city council. In 93, an extinct mammal genus was named Schockia in honor of Dr. Schock's paleontological contributions. The chamber beneath the Sphinx's paw, which Dr. Schock discovered in the early 90s, that's working with Dr. Thomas DeBecky, and which many people believe is an ancient archive, um, a hall of records, they say, that still remains unexplored. It should be noted that this was a summarized version of Dr. Schock's impressive achievements, and we're extremely honored to have him on Western Rockies. So welcome, Dr. Schock. Dr. Schock, can you hear us okay? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Oh, my pleasure. I really can't wait to get into some of your research. It's honestly really fascinating. And if there's anybody joining us that's familiar with it, I know that they know what to expect. For the people that this might be something new to them, I really want them to approach this topic with an open mind because this is one of those times where there is evidence to back up the claims that you are making. Can we start, if it's okay with you, with your research on the Sphinx? Because I feel that sure. this kind of led to a lot of other different things as your research went on. Why don't you tell me a little bit, what was it about the Sphinx that stood out to you as maybe uh, not being what the uh, common theory of the uh, Sphinx states? Sure. Well, the Sphinx uh, is uh, a, a long story unto itself. And... Um we can summarize a little bit of it here, but I would say just, just before we get into that, that the Sphinx really did open up a vast field of research. I would say not just for myself, but and I'm not trying to applaud myself, but the Sphinx uh, really opened up a vast sort of area of research for what some people call alternative views of history and archaeology and the past and um, really sort of opened up this whole field of um, uh, looking at things a little bit differently. And a lot of this actually is due to my colleague, my late colleague, John Anthony West, who unfortunately passed away three months ago to the day today. He died uh, February 6th of this year, 2018. But he was the person, and this ties now directly in with your question, he is the person who introduced me to the Great Sphinx in a formal sense. Of course, I knew what the Sphinx was. Everyone knows what the Sphinx is. Possibly the greatest statue on Earth, one of the, certainly one of the largest uh, freestanding statues um, on Earth in Egypt. But to make a very long story short, the traditional dating for the Sphinx is 2500 BC. The late John Anthony West, who was a student of the work of a fellow named Schwaller de Lubitsch, realized that Schwaller had made a comment about the Sphinx having anomalous weathering and erosion that didn't seem to fit the um, 2500 BC period. So John Anthony West contacted me in the late 1980s. I have a PhD in geology and geophysics from Yale. I've been teaching at Boston University ever since I you know, got my graduate degree, my PhD. So I was at Boston University. There was a faculty member there at the time who had known John Anthony West, and sort of things happened, and I was introduced to John Anthony West. He spoke to me about the whole issue of the Sphinx and invited me ultimately to come to Egypt with him. So this first happened in 1990, uh, almost 30 years ago, and I went there explicitly to look at the Sphinx from a geological point of view. And what I noticed immediately, and when I say immediately within the first couple of minutes, maybe the first 30 seconds of seeing the Sphinx, was two things. One was that the weathering and erosion on the body of the Sphinx and what's known as the Sphinx enclosure or the Sphinx ditch because the body of the Sphinx is actually carved into the bedrock. So the 
body sits below the bedrock. So it sits in what's known as the enclosure or ditch. The weathering and erosion on the body, on the walls of the enclosure, are not compatible with the arid conditions of the Sahara Desert that we have for the last 5,000 years. There was, to put it very simply, water erosion, rainfall, precipitation, erosion, and weathering. This had to go back, I figured, to a much earlier climatic period, one that was thousands of years earlier, ultimately, and that just throws, as I say, a huge monkey wrench in the timing of prehistory when civilization first began, when you first had have civilization, sophisticated culture, technology, because it's not just the Sphinx we're talking about. We're talking about the so-called Sphinx Temple and Valley Temple, which are constructed from, I should say, huge limestone blocks, some of which weigh 10... 20, 30, 40, and more tons, which they carved out simultaneously when carving the body of the Sphinx. So we're talking advanced technology, if you would, going back thousands of years earlier. I'm simplifying it now. The second thing that struck me is that the head of the Sphinx was not the original head, is not the original head. It's a dynastic head. It's a human head, but it's too small for the body. It was quite evident to me within just 30 seconds, really, that the head is carved differently from the rest of the body. It doesn't have as much weathering. I've been able to confirm all of this since in the last almost 30 years with uh, numerous analyses. So you've got object that was used, reused, recarved in dynastic times and has a much more substantial history than Egyptologists have ever suspected. And as I said, it really um, sort of opened up a field of looking for much earlier civilization, evidence of much earlier civilization. I know that when you and John Anthony West, rest in peace to Mr. West, when you guys presented these findings, it was met with a lot of, uh, you know, the cynicism from, the, from the, the Egyptologists and just the scientific community, it seems. Uh, no, you know, no, you're getting it wrong. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Can I say, though? It was met with incredible cynicism and nastiness from the Egyptologists, not from the scientific community. I just wanted to make that distinction because when I presented it, I first presented it at the Geological Society of America, and this was the initial results, 1991, but we've got a lot more data since then, which I could elaborate on, but that was 1991. The immediate reaction of my geological colleagues was that this is correct, this is right. They didn't have any problem with it. They understood the analyses within, by the end of the day, because this was making news literally around the world at the time. You had journalists calling Egyptologists on the phone. Back then, that's all they had was the phone. Uh, no internet, that type of thing. No cell phones. Uh, they were calling Egyptologists on the phone who had not seen my data, had not been at the presentation. It turns out even if they had been at my presentation, they wouldn't have understood what I was talking about anyway because they're not scientists. And I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm just being honest. 
And they were really skeptical. They were uh, chagrined. They were upset about it. They started calling me a pseudoscientist. They started saying that the aliens had not built the pyramids. I wasn't even talking about the pyramids or aliens. I mean, it was just really bitter and nasty. So all of a sudden, this all came out. So it was a huge mess in the sense that uh, you had geologists supporting me. You had Egyptologists saying this couldn't be the case. And then it sort of came to a stalemate when the American Association for the Advancement of Science, at the bequest of the Egyptologist, stepped in, should we say, set up a, quote, debate between myself and Mark Lehner, um, Egyptologist, who had studied the Sphinx as his Ph.D. dissertation of at, of all places, Yale University, where I got my Ph.D. in geology and geophysics. And um, he just talked past me. He said, basically, he said I didn't know what I was talking about. But, in fact, he didn't know what he was talking about. And I could go into more detail about it. But the bottom line is he didn't even look at the evidence or data. He essentially just said that this can't be the case. You must be wrong because we Egyptologists know more about Egypt than geologists do. And I've had many Egyptologists over the years basically tell me, look at rocks somewhere else and don't disturb our ideas. Don't, don't upset our paradigm. You know, go do something else. I'm simplifying, but they've said that pretty bluntly. I've actually been threatened, but wow. we won't go there. Wow, unbelievable. Um, actually, yeah. regarding um, Mark Lehner, and I do specifically remember him saying, you know, from what I watched of that presentation, that he, he said he didn't see any data that convinced him, there is no evidence, show me more evidence, and then I'll consider it. When Yeah, you know, yeah that is correct. But you could show him all the evidence you ever wanted to, and he's never going to see. He's never going to be convinced by it. I mean, it's not unlike, I'm starting to sound like John Anthony West, Rest, let him rest in peace. It's not unlike dealing with a fundamentalist. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone's religion, but a fundamentalist, no matter what religion it is, you can show them evidence and try to argue with them you know, forever, and they know what they believe, and they're not going to change their mind. All right, I guess. Go that, ahead. I'm sorry. No, I guess that did answer my question because um, I, I guess generally in this community of outside the box thinkers, shall I say, how do you deal with people when you just feel like you're talking past each other? Um, and how have you dealt with them in the past? Or is there just nothing you can do? There's sometimes there's nothing you can do. I'll, I'll tell you um, two real stories uh, that came out of that debate. Uh, and I don't, all these years later, I think it's okay to say it on air, you know, and let people hear it. One is that Mark Lehner and another guy named K. Lau Gowry, who worked with him, uh, who was a so-called geoarchaeologist, I'm showing them the data before the actual debate, because I was very open and honest, and I had a lot of evidence, not just weathering and that type of thing, but all kinds of seismic evidence, which I didn't hear the introduction to me, but I think you may have mentioned that, because it also, we found a chamber under the Sphinx, that type of thing. So I'm showing them all this data and these charts and graphs and whatnot, and they're clearly not quite comprehending it and don't understand what they're looking at. And then I look over their shoulder and I see that they have it all upside down. They're literally looking at it upside down because they didn't know they were so clueless as to what they were looking at. 
<laughs> and I was very polite, and I sort of turned it around, and said, it "Might help if you look at it from this angle." <laughs> <laughs> and they still didn't know what they were looking at. Um, I mean, it was that level. And then all they would do publicly is insist that I didn't know what I was talking about, and that I was insensitive to the Egyptians and you know Zaha Was. This is a not the same debate. He said I was stealing Egypt or trying to steal Egypt from the Egyptians, and I was part of a Zionist plot. You know, in Egypt, if you really are mad at someone, you start saying they're a Zionist or a Jew. But the other thing I was going to say, at that same debate, it was very uncomfortable, but um, at one point, Mark Lehner and I just ran into each other in a hall, and uh, he said something to me of the effect that I know perfectly well you don't believe any of this. You're just trying to be on TV and get publicity and whatnot. Wow. And I started to say, well, no, I'm not. And then he said, well, then you answer this question. How did blah, blah, blah? And it was something about the geology. And I actually don't remember what it was, but I only realized in hindsight it wasn't a real question. It was a rhetorical question that he thought I had no answer for. And I did have an answer for it because I had already thought it through. So I start explaining it to him, and we're standing face to face. And as I'm explaining it, I'm in mid-sentence. He just turns around and walks away because he didn't want to hear a real explanation for anything. He didn't really want to discuss any of this. He just... You know, he he basically wanted to put me down publicly and get rid of me. And I will say that over 25 years later, they haven't gotten rid of me because we have the evidence. And my motto, so to speak, is to go by the evidence, whatever the evidence is. And I would also like to point out that I'm not alone in this. So, for instance, I don't know if you've talked about it or heard about it, but not that long ago, I think it was late last year, the big void in the Great Pyramid, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, I'm afraid the, of... A uh, bunch of physicists using muography, muon technology, cutting-edge physics, found by remote sensing, by this non-invasive technique, that there appears to be a huge void in the Great Pyramid above the Grand Gallery. I've looked at the raw data. I'm not part of the investigation directly, but I've looked at the raw data. I have a PhD in geology and geophysics. I know what I'm looking at. I am absolutely convinced that they're right, that there's very, very strong evidence you know, you can never, you never want to say irrefutable in science, but really strong evidence that there is a chamber a void, as they call it, in the Great Pyramid that apparently has, to the best of our knowledge, no direct connection to it, has gone undiscovered all this time. Just like I found with Thomas DeBecky, a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. Just like the Egyptologists wanted to deny everything I found and say it's nonsense, they're now telling these top-notch physicists from Japan, from France, from Canada, a whole team of them, that it's all nonsense too and they know it's not real. Well, how do they know it's not real? Just because they're Egyptologists and they know it's not real and they don't understand the data or anything else, but they just, you know, they make up things. 
I hate uh, to be so blunt. And, I, I and, and they even said it's propaganda. This was their, their latest term. Oh, it's anti, essentially anti-Egyptian propaganda to discover something new that the Egyptologists don't know about. It's really insane. So I'm just pointing that out, that it's not just directed at me. This is just the way sort of status quo classic Egyptologists tend to be. And I think that answers my question at the beginning, which was, is research receiving a more favorable reception nowadays? But it sounds like, uh, at least with the Egyptologists, there's still a lot of resistance. Yeah, there's, a, there's basically a lot of resistance to anything that they don't know or they themselves haven't discovered. I mean, you know, I hate to be crude, but God forbid someone should discover something that Egyptologist hasn't discovered. Um, they reject it completely. And then sometimes even if the Egyptologist is on the cutting edge um, discovering something new, unless they're an Egyptian Egyptologist, more or less Egyptian nationality, they come under a lot of fire. And then if they're Egyptian Egyptologist, but not the top dog one, not the superior, but the, you know, the lower level one, they come under, it's, it's so much politics, so much, I guess, psychological aspects, you know, people with vested interest. It, it's pretty insane if you're not used to it. I was going to ask before we jump back into the topic of the Sphinx, just to give folks a better idea of the panorama here that uh, researchers like yourself encounter. With this research and them not really being uh, receptive to it, why do you think that is? Is it just pride? A lot of people say, well, these findings are groundbreaking. They would rewrite the history books. Do you have any idea of what well, the agenda I, I think there's several factors that go into it. One is pride. One people, what people don't want to rewrite history books. People have vested interest. If you've studied something all your life, you don't want it overturned by someone else's investigations and studies. But there's another factor here, and I hate to bring this up, but uh, this troubles me from the other end. There are, frankly, a lot of frauds out there. There are a lot of people that just make up things, that just, um, you know, come to conclusions without any good evidence, without any good data on all sides. So, you know, I can understand that uh, to a certain level, because I'm an academic, I've been involved in academia all my um, adult career. I never left a university setting ever since I went to college as an undergraduate freshman. I've been either a student or a faculty member or worked briefly in an academic uh, you know, Yale University museum situation. And you get a lot of people out there that come up with things and they say they have evidence for it, but it turns out the evidence is fraudulent or just, you know, basically imaginary. And you have that in lots of fields. Now, Egyptology in particular and ancient um, history and archaeology has its slew of people like that uh, to use a different subject, but just as an analogy, something I'm also very interested in, seriously interested in from an academic, intellectual uh, research point of view, is we'll call it psychic phenomena. Now, there is, I don't mind getting into it, but I don't need mean to get into it now. But what I want to say is that I'm convinced from my own research and studies, and I've actually spent a lot of time on this because it ties in with the ancient studies, that certain types of psychic phenomena are absolutely real. And, you know, most of my academic colleagues don't even want to admit that. Well, 
Why don't they want to admit it? One thing they point out, which is rightfully so, is that there are a whole lot of, quote, psychics out there, unquote, who are absolute frauds. Do you see where I'm coming from? Absolutely. So, you know, all they have to do is point to one that a fraud with her crystal ball or his crystal ball or something and say, look, this is just total nonsense. Then they dismiss the whole field. So all they have to do is point to one person in um, Egyptology who is sort of pushing the envelope, quote, thinking outside of the box, but it turns out that it's all baseless and groundless, and then they want to dismiss everything that is, quote, outside of the box, whether it has um, good evidence or not. It's actually a tactic to get rid of things that they don't want to deal with, but it's actually fairly effective, at least in academic circles, to paint a researcher who may be doing absolutely valid work, as I believe I am, and I say I am, um, based on the evidence, with others that are doing less than, you know, should we say, genuine research. Right. There's a lot of issues here. And then there's another issue, a third issue. So the issues so far are just personal pride, um, vested interest, you know, whether there's good evidence or not. Uh, some of them will actually destroy evidence. I don't even want to go there. Wow. So there's that type of thing. There's um, the genuine fraud, and then they say, well, this guy was a fraud, so you must be a fraud too, even though you have no relationship to that person. Then there, and I say this seriously, there are religious interests. So I have had people argue with me or argue against me for the age of the Sphinx in particular, because it doesn't fit their religious mm-hmm. beliefs, right. to put it simply. And I've had both Muslims, and I'll name it, Muslims and Christians tell me that the Sphinx can't be as old as it is because, you know, they know from the Bible, they know from the Quran or whatever, It's that just can't be the case. And, you know, their religion comes first. Right, and it really boggles the mind because there is this thing in the middle of the desert that it, it raises a huge question as to yeah, whether these texts exactly. are... Yeah, exactly. So those are just three major aspects as I see it, but there's, there's a lot going on. Um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, so many people say to me, well, if the evidence is there, why don't they just accept it? Well, it's not that simple. Gotcha. Is there maybe also um, a financial incentive? I mean, let's say... Oh, yeah, that, there uh, probably is a lot of financial incentive, but that that's sometimes harder to trace where that financial incentive is and who has that financial incentive, because one could argue, for instance that why wouldn't there be a financial incentive to um, for the Egyptians to admit the evidence that the Sphinx itself is an older statue that was reused in um, dynastic times. So the dynastic Egyptians, and we actually now have hieroglyphic evidence that indicates this, that the Sphinx was originally a lioness by the name of Methit, um, and then was reused in dynastic times, the head was recarved, etc. It makes it much more exciting. I would think that would increase tourism, which then gets into finances for the Egyptian state. You know, they'd bring in more money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot. You have the uh, religious aspects. You have the other vested interests. Then you have people that have already put a lot of money into the status quo, whether it's the books they produced or television shows who knows what. So 
for me, it's harder to figure out in this specific case which way the finances go and who has what finances. And right. then you have someone like uh, one uh, Egyptian I once was talking to over breakfast. Uh, he was a Ph.D. at Cairo University, not a historian or archaeologist, but more um, economics, finances, that type of thing. And I have to say this since you brought it up. He looks out, and we're, we're having breakfast at... Um, a cafe or whatever that looks out over the pyramids and sphinx and whatnot. And he tells me in no uncertain terms, and he wasn't joking, that he, if he had his way, he would dismantle all those pyramids, et cetera, and use the raw materials to build a huge um, covered over indoor, um, what do they call them? Shopping mall, air conditioned shopping mall like they have in Dubai. Unbelievable. Wow. But the one in Egypt would be better than Dubai, and that would bring in real money. I mean, he was serious about this. He was absolutely serious. I wow. mean, yeah, if it had been someone else in another context, I would have thought it was a joke. But he was absolutely serious. I'm sure it came partly from his, uh, I'm sure he was Islam, you know, Muslim, uh, uh, and uh, from an Islamic point of view, you know, they don't put the same value on it as other people might. Just like in America, not everyone values some silly Indian mound when it you know, comes to building apartments or something. Let's get back into the Sphinx real quick. I just want to ask you some quick questions about that uh, before we move on and, and talk about what was possibly the original appearance of the Sphinx. But my first question sure. is, is the Sphinx one solid piece of rock or was it built from uh, different pieces of rock? Okay, so I have to answer it's not it's not as simple as one or the other. It was originally carved from one piece of solid bedrock. So the original Sphinx was carved from solid bedrock. Originally the head was only above the level of the plateau. They carved the head first. This is my assessment based on the evidence. I'm giving you the scenario. They carved the head first. Of course, I wasn't actually there to watch them do it. Um, but they carved the head first. Then they carved the body down into the bedrock. So I was mentioning before that the body is actually below the ground level, the original ground level. And to this day, when you go and you see the Sphinx from the best angles, you actually stand on essentially the edge of a sort of like the edge of a um, quarry, if you would, and you look down into it and you see the body. And literally, when they were carving the body, they quarried out huge blocks of limestone. It's all limestone there. And they used those blocks of limestone to build the temples, which are still there in ruinous condition, known as the Sphinx Temple and the Valley Temples. So originally, it was carved from one piece of solid rock. A lot of people say to me, well, it looks like the head is a different rock. Well, no, the head is part of the same solid piece of bedrock. But the head, from a geological point of view, actually has a bit of a different lithology. It's, you know, rocks are like layer cakes, at least there. And the higher layers of the head are a bit different than the lower layers. So they do look a bit different, even though they're all contiguous. They're all, you know, it's all mother rock, as they like to say in Egypt. Also, the face has been recarved. The head's been recarved. It's been painted. 
um, over the years in ancient times, so it looks a bit different. That's number one. Number two, when you go and see the Sphinx now, a lot of people think it was made from a bunch of little blocks or at least parts of it, and that's because since it's been so weathered, even as much as 4,000-plus years ago, they tried to cover up and repair some of the weathering by recarving it, like the head. They recarved the head. Other parts, they covered it over with smaller blocks of limestone to fill in where it was weathered away. So at this point, you can't see the original paws of the, of the Sphinx because they've been all covered over with blocks of limestone. So the paws look like they're made of essentially blocks of limestone or bricks of limestone, but that is a secondary repair job. Even as late, I haven't seen it recently, but um, recently as 10 years ago, I was there and I watched the Egyptians as they were putting in modern repairs. And since I go back and forth quite a bit, I have noticed every time I notice new repairs or things that they've done to it that did not look like that uh, last time I was there. So they're continually repairing it. It's sort of like um, Da Vinci's Last Supper, which is in pretty lousy shape, but they just leave it alone. In the case of the Sphinx, they continue to chip, not chip away of it, but put little cement here and there, a new block here and there. They sort of tamper with it, which I don't think is really great, but they're the owners of it, so to speak. Right. My next question before we get into the aspects of erosion, which are extremely important for this conversation, um, let's start with this. According to Egyptologists, what was the purpose or the symbolism of the Sphinx? And has your research uncovered something that either supports that theory or maybe the purpose of the Sphinx was something different? The Egyptologists are sort of vague about it because the Sphinx, there is no, there's only one Sphinx. There's only one great Sphinx. So they basically talk about it as being part of the complex that the pharaoh Khafre had for his funerary complex that ties in with his so-called valley temple. The Sphinx sits due east of the second pyramid. The second pyramid, and I'm giving you the Egyptological point of view, the conventional Egyptological point of view at the moment, which I frankly don't agree with, but the second pyramid is conventionally attributed to the pharaoh Khafre, of the 4th dynasty, circa 2500 BC. The Sphinx sits due east of the Second Pyramid, so it's been associated with the Second Pyramid by the classical Egyptologists of the 20th century and now into the 21st century. And they've been sort of vague about how, oh, the Sphinx was, you know, somehow guarding the pyramid. The face of the Sphinx is the face of Khafre, which we disproved a long time ago. It's not the face of Khafre because we have good statues of the face of Khafre, um, and it's not the same face on the Sphinx. And um, the late Frank Domingo, who was a forensic artist with New York Police Department, worked on that with us and was able to demonstrate definitively it's not even the same race or the same ethnic group as Khafre was. But the Egyptologists are vague about somehow it's guarding the um, pyramid of Khafre, somehow associated with it. The thing is, You've got a bunch of other pyramids in Egypt. None of them have sphinxes or any kind of big statues guarding them like the um, the second pyramid supposedly does. So it doesn't actually even make sense from an Egyptological point of view. 
that some of them say, well, it's guarding the general Giza plateau, which, you know, was a graveyard essentially, uh, with the pyramids and lots of other tombs and mastabas, which are a type of tomb there. Well, yeah, that's true, but a lot of those are probably later used secondary. And the Sphinx is facing east, not west, so it's not something like Anubis. Some people have tried to claim, totally baseless in my opinion, but tried to claim it was Anubis originally, which makes no sense whatsoever. So they've not really had much good explanation for the Sphinx. Now, I will tell you what I think is the true explanation for it, and this has now been confirmed with hieroglyphic inscriptions, and if people want to go to my website, can I give my website? Please do, please do. Yeah, my website is uh, robertshock.com, so let me spell that. It's www.robertshock.com. Then my full name all run together, well, my first name and last name, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H. So my last name is Shock, but it's spelled S-C-H-O-C-H. So www.robertshock.com. And on that, because uh, this is very new as of last year, we, when I say we, I want to give credit where credit's due, Dr. Manu Saifzadeh, who is a friend and colleague of mine, and Robert Bouval, who is also a colleague and friend of mine. And some people may have heard of him because he's done a lot of work in Egypt also. He's the one that came up with the Orion correlation for the pyramids on the Giza Plateau. And he and I recently wrote a book together called Origins of the Sphinx that came out last year. But we have determined, putting everything together, that the Sphinx was originally a lion, but not just a lion in the sense of a male lion, but a lioness, a female lion. And it was a female lion before it was recarved with a human head. The ancient Egyptians have it. They talked about it, if you would. They wrote about it in their some of their earliest hieroglyphic inscriptions that go back 500 years approximately before the Egyptologists say the Sphinx even existed. And they talk about the Sphinx. They, the earliest um, hieroglyphic inscriptions from the Egyptians, they talk about the Sphinx as essentially being the lioness Methet, who was a guardian lion or lioness, female lion that goes back to the earliest, as far as we know, the earliest aspects of Egyptian history. She was a female lioness, and this was already known by Egyptologists, but no one has associated with the Sphinx, but she was represented in the form of the Sphinx, and not only that, she was a guardian of an archive. Uh, she was guardian of an archive underneath her. This is how you interpret the ancient inscriptions, well, that ties right in with what Thomas DeBecky and I found in the early 1990s using seismic analysis that there is a chamber under the Sphinx, under the left paw specifically, which has to this day, to the best of my knowledge, never been probed or entered. And we have reconstructed that that was an ancient library, an ancient archive that was being guarded by the lioness Methet, a royal archive. Uh, at least that's how they refer to it in the inscriptions uh, from the earliest, earliest um, hieroglyphic inscriptions of the earliest dynastic period. And furthermore, they talk about it 
they imply or basically state that this was a very ancient structure even to them 5,000 years ago. Uh, so it all, to me, fits together that what we had was this female lioness, Methid, guarding a sacred royal, whatever you want to call it, archive. One of the things that always comes up when we discuss uh, Egypt is the construction, whether it's the construction of the pyramids or the Sphinx. Everybody seems to have their own ideas and theories as to how it was possible. Can you tell me a little bit about the construction of the Sphinx? I know that it would have been a huge undertaking considering the size of some of the material being used. Can you tell me a little bit about your theory as to how this Sphinx was put together? Yeah, sure. I can tell you my theory. I don't have a theory. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I mean, I'm not going to sit here mm -hmm. or stand here. I'm, 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 on, I'm sitting at the moment and tell you some theory about how they um, constructed, which I don't necessarily believe, because we have a huge problem here. I can tell you as a geologist, this was not an easy task to undertake. I'll be blunt. I don't know how it was done uh, because it it would have been very simple to carve the Sphinx if they wanted to do it the easy way. The easy way would have been to chip, chip, chip at the rock and knock off a lot of flakes as you're chipping away at it like you were, you know, carving a sculpture like a, a Michelangelo or whatever would take a big chunk of marble and chip away at it until the sculpture came out, until the form came out. That would have been easy. They could have done it that way. They could have then just carted off in baskets a bunch of rubble, you know, small chips of rock. That's not what they did. They, of course, chipped away at it in places to get the final features and whatnot, but to rough it out, and I mentioned this before, they carved out huge blocks of rock. Uh, some of them weigh estimated close to 100 tons or so. I mean, we're talking really huge chunks of rock. Um, not just chunks, but big, you know, well-cut, nicely formed blocks of rock. And they carved those in the what's known as the Sphinx enclosure when they were carving out the body. They removed these huge chunks of rock and they reused them. They didn't move them very far. They moved them just to the east and just to the southeast of the Sphinx to build these um, temples, where are known as temples. Who knows what they really were originally, uh, but they're called temples now. And the thing is, how do you carve them out in such tight tolerances, such small area? How do you mute, move these huge blocks? And then how do you lay them down precisely? Because when you look at them, they're laid down very precisely. And the tolerances are incredible. And there's not much room to move around as you lay these blocks down. So, you know, the classic answer is that they just use incredible human power, manpower to be sexist, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, you had hundreds or people or thousands even, you know, pulling on ropes and levers and jiggling things around. The problem in part, in my mind, is that these are really heavy. When you're talking even 30 tons, much less, you know, 50 or approaching 100 tons, that's incredible, number one. But number two, there's no space to have all these people that are hypothesized, you know, because you're working with, in very cramped quarters. Uh, so I, I honestly don't have an answer as to how it was done. 
I mean, I think it was clearly done. I can tell you that. I've studied it for a long time. And you, we know exactly where the blocks came from geologically. Not just I, but there's been several other geologists over the years that have studied this. And it's served like a huge three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. You can actually figure out where the blocks were approximately in the Sphinx enclosure. And they were moved you know, you can reconstruct how they were moving things and whatnot in what order, but how they did it, who knows? I mean, it would have been easy if they just had some kind of anti-gravitation, you know, thing and beam it around. Uh, and, of course, some people do hypothesize that, I suppose. I mean, I know they do. They say that. But um, I've had many people tell me that's the way it was done. Why? Because they had a dream about it, and that's what someone told them in a dream. Or, and I'm not making fun of anyone. But, right. you know, I'm a physical scientist. That isn't adequate evidence for me. But on the other hand, I don't have an explanation for it. There are, to my mind, genuine enigmas, genuine mysteries that we still haven't solved, at least adequately to my way of thinking. And this is one of them. And to give people an idea of how difficult it would be to move such huge blocks, um, what would, uh, let's say, a modern Uh, construction site workers say? How easy would it be for them to move those blocks in our day and age? In modern terms, we actually um, have had people look at this. This is something actually John Anthony West was very interested in uh, when, when you know, he was still alive and we looked at it together and consulted with construction engineers, that type of thing. And they, in modern times, you can move Big, heavy things. For instance, if you're doing a massive boiler, you know, for um, that goes into a building, or um, what do they call it when you're building a nuclear power plant and you have, um, you know, the big inner core that's made somewhere else and it has to be put into position, that type of thing. It can be done, sort of. Well, it can be done, but what you, you normally have is you have all kinds of cranes and setups and counterweights. And part of the problem ties back to what I was saying. On the plateau there, when they were moving these huge blocks around, I mean, if they had huge cranes and huge counterweights, you know, we don't have the evidence for that now. But more importantly, where would you set these cranes and all their counterweights and whatnot? You're, you're talking, you just don't have the room to put all this type of equipment that we would use in modern times. Plus, you know, you've got to worry about destabilizing the very structures you're trying to build because of the weights and the counterweights. I mean, it, it's it's... There's really no good, in my mind, there's right now, there's no good explanation as how they did it. Or I don't want to go so far as to say we can't do it now, but it would be a massive, massive undertaking with incredible um, sort of planning and trying to get all the equipment there. And, you know, you move something so far, then you have to reposition everything. It sort of boggles the mind the more one thinks about it, if you're really there thinking about and looking at and seeing the size of these things. And before we go to the break, I guess I want to go back to the basics and how and when you first came into the exploration of the swings. What is the significance of water erosion as opposed to what was previously assumed sand and wind erosion? What is so startling about a discovery well, such as that? Well, the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara Desert. It's 
hyper-arid. Yes, you have rain once in a while, and I've seen it rain, and you have little flash floods, but that's not going to account for what the weathering and erosion you see on the Sphinx. On the Sphinx, you have this rolling, I describe as rolling, undulating erosion, weathering. Um, You have uh, vertical fissures that open up because of water runoff, that type of thing. And I want to say very bluntly right now, it's not from rising Nile flooding. That's a whole different thing geologically, has a very different and distinctive pattern to it. This is from rain. This is from erosion and quite a bit of it over a long protracted period of time. So essentially the bottom line is that doesn't fit the last 5,000 years of paleoclimatic history on the Giza Plateau. And if it doesn't fit the last 5,000 years, it means the Sphinx couldn't have been carved 4,500 years ago, as the Egyptologists say. It has to go back to a a more um, rainy, I'll just put it bluntly, rainy period in um, the history of the Giza Plateau and North Africa more generally. And we have a very good handle on the changing climates, and there's been wetter periods, drier periods, et cetera. The last 5,000 years has been very dry. So it has to go back into that earlier period geologically to account for the weathering and erosion, the nature that we see. And it has to go far enough back to account for the massive, a meter or more of erosion that we see on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure and the um, body of the Sphinx itself, which has no catchment area. So there you don't have a lot of water runoff. It's just from water beating down on it. And that was the first thing, and I could estimate crudely how far back it goes there. One reason we did seismic, subsurface seismic, is I wanted to look at a different type of weathering, which is essentially mineralogical changes that occur over time, again, because of exposure to air, exposure to the elements, that type of thing. And from there, which is actually much stronger from my point of view, geologically and geophysically, you get the same scenario. You get the same data and the same analysis, or I should say the analysis comes to the same conclusion that the Sphinx goes back thousands and thousands of years earlier. And um, the inevitable question should be, how far back does it go? And my best estimate right now, and I talk about this specifically in Origins of the Sphinx and also my other book, which is the one I recommend to people, Forgotten Civilization, as a first read, for my work is that the Sphinx goes back to the end of the last ice age, very different climatic period, and in numerical terms, we're talking about 10,000 BC, which is absolutely incredible, and I realize that's absolutely incredible, but that's where the data goes, that it goes back to um, the end of the last ice age. There were protracted rains at the end of the last ice age because of um, changing climatic conditions, and I don't know if we'll get into it, but solar outbursts that brought the ice age to end and uh, flipped the climate and brought incredible uh, uh, you know, temperature changes, warming at the end of the last ice age and things melting and water evaporating, lots of water gain to the atmosphere, then coming down as precipitation and flooding. I mean, it's, it's incredible, you know situation that we have, but the Sphinx witnessed this, and a lot of it actually came from then, and the subsurface data indicates the same thing. So it's very different than if uh, the Sphinx was just 
2500 BC. And I just want to make one last point. There are plenty of structures on the Giza Plateau that are well dated by hieroglyphic inscriptions to 2500 or so BC. They don't show the same weathering and erosion as the Sphinx does, even though they're exactly the same rock. They're carved out of the same rock. People in the chat are really getting interested in this, and people are discussing the Bible as well in relation to this. Especially the Great Flood, I guess, is something that's significant in a lot of this historical research. What evidence was there towards some sort of, I mean, you already touched on it, but some sort of flood? Oh, yeah, there was at the end of the last ice age. I'm of the opinion, honestly, that, well, let me say before I uh, say my opinion, I want to say that not just in the Bible, the Judeo-Christian Bible, as well as other religious texts around the world, and in mythologies and legends, you name it, there are flood stories all around the world. I used to think that they weren't so much in, in deeper Africa, but it turns out we have flood stories there too. And there are uh, several different types, are different aspects to flood stories. One is um, that there was incredible rains pouring down, so you have flood on the land, you had what we would now call rising sea levels, you know, large expanses of land inundated, which I think in some ways was interpreted, at least locally, as the whole world was flooded over. Uh, and, you know, you get Noah's Ark, that type of thing, and the variations on that theme and other legends. Well, to me, this all makes a lot of sense in terms of what was happening geologically and to the humans that were living at that time at the end of the last ice age, which is specifically 9700 BC. We know that very well now from ice cores in particular from Greenland that the end of the last ice age ended just about exactly 9700 BC and it ended in a flash. It literally ended overnight. I mean, it's not even, it's within a, a fraction of a fraction of a year based on ice core data, what they call microstratigraphy. It didn't take 10 years. It didn't take, you know, three years. It didn't take 100 years or more like they thought when I was a, a graduate student at Yale. It happened literally overnight, and I reconstruct have reconstructed this from a solar outburst. But this put all this, um, as I mentioned, water into the atmosphere, which came down as incredible rains and flooding the world over. So it's logical that we have these legends, and we see the evidence many places, including the Sphinx. I've learned now, and I wasn't always this way because I was trained as a classic academic, that if you have myths and legends, much less, oh my God, the Bible, you know, you just dismiss all of that. Well, no, it turns out, in my opinion, you have to take that stuff seriously. Not that you take it absolutely literally all the time, but more often than not, um, I've been finding in my own research, there is um, core of truth or even more than just a core of truth to a lot of um, legends, mythologies, religious texts, that type of thing. And while I'm thinking of it, I wanted to mention one other very famous, um, should we say, myth. When I say myth, I'm not calling it a myth, but my academic colleagues call it a myth, and that is Atlantis. Right. The famous Atlantis that comes from no less than Plato. And what is important here is that you have the same type of thing. You know, Atlantis is destroyed in a night and a day by essentially, you know, all these disruptions and flooding and it sinks under the waves, et cetera, et cetera. 
Okay, I don't want to get into Atlantis too much. I'm not a Atlantis chaser, and I'm trying to locate where Atlantis is geographically. I'm not sure that's even valid. What I've come to believe is that there is one aspect of Atlantis that is really important, the Atlantis story, and that is the dating. Plato is very, very clear that's about 9,000 years before the story is picked up by his um, ancestor, essentially, uh, in Egypt. And it comes from Egypt, and it was uh, related to um, ancient Greeks and then passed down to Plato about 600 or so B.C. And at that time, it was said to have occurred 9,000 years earlier. So that puts us, in our dating terms, the calendar we now use for years at about 9,600 or so B.C., This is um, within a century of the modern dating of the end of the last ice age, 9700 BC. You know, 20 years ago, they were saying the 9500 BC for the end of the last ice age. We were off by 200 years. Now, with ice cores, it's generally accepted about 9700 BC. The point is, either way, Plato's dating of the Atlantis and all the disasters that happened with the collapse and destruction of Atlantis, which in my opinion fit exactly what was happening in real life on Earth at the end of the last ice age, it all fits together and the timing is correct. That really blows my mind. Honestly, um, if you wouldn't mind, um, after our top of the hour break, I um, I think a lot of people in the chat, and ourselves included, would be very interested to hear about um, Atlantis a little bit more and maybe um, Edgar Casey's, I guess, not predictions, I guess. Uh, no, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that. Awesome. Okay, uh, okay Dr. Shark, if you'd be so kind to just hang on the line, we'll bring you right back after we come back from the break. Okay. Very cool. Sounds good. And we're going to go to break really quick here because I really can't wait to get back to this conversation. I'm like, literally, Genevieve, you can call me a liar if I'm lying, but am I on the edge of my seat literally, yes or no? Oh, yeah, you are. I I was going to say, I'm literally just like sweating in here, but maybe maybe that's the California climate, but I think it's the interview. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is is really fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, Egypt is definitely in my bucket list, and it's a privilege to have Dr. Uh, Shock here, who's been there uh, on numerous occasions, giving us his insight through his research into this still a mystery. I know a lot of people think that we have this all figured out and that history is written in stone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, you ask anyone, um, well, most people, and they'll say, yep, the Sphinx was built by, you know, the ancient pharaohs, and so were the temples, and the temples were tombs, and the more you yeah. dig, the more you realize possibly none of this is true. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the key, right? You just got to keep digging. We're going to go to break with this great song, actually. I I really like this song. It's uh, by the church. It's called Under the Milky Way. And it reminds me of so many great photographs. I don't know if they're Photoshop or not, but you know those really cool photographs of the pyramids and the sphinx with like the Milky Way in the background? I always thought those were pretty cool. (laughs) So we're going to go with Under the Milky Way by the church. We're going to be right back with our guest, Dr. Robert Schock, in just a few minutes. Let's do the Rockies! Open, open, open your, your, your mind, mind, mind. 
we're back to the second hour of West of the Rockies. Um, Frank, thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we're having a great conversation here with our guest, Dr. Robert Schock. As uh, so always, you can find me on Twitter at Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. Just take the initials for West of the Rockies at the word radio on your Twitter and you will find us on there. And if you do the same thing, but then add .com at the end of that, that will take you to our website where you will be able to find this interview and a host of others that deal with uh, very similar topics. As always, I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter, and you can catch her here every Thursday night, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific time, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more. Little back announcing here, we heard Under the Milky Way by The Church, and another favorite of mine, Leonard Cohen's, never mind. I mean, Leonard Cohen, you just recognize that voice coming a mile away, don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know how many whiskeys I'd have to drink and how many cigarettes cigars. I, or cigars <laughs> I'd have to smoke. I have no idea, but I don't think I could reach that voice anytime. Right. Uh, so we hope you guys enjoy the break. As I mentioned, our guest tonight is Dr. Robert Schock, and I'm going to bring him back on the line here. Dr. Uh, Schock, why don't you tell people one more time what's your website so they can go and check out more info on you and order your books and all that good stuff. That sounds good. It's uh, www. Robert Schock, which is spelled R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H dot com. And so people should go to my website, check things out. Yeah, books are great. Also, I do do tours. I not only go to Egypt and other places for my own research, but I also take people with me sometimes and do actual tours. Um at different levels to different places, that type of thing. A lot of people have been asking about Egypt recently, so I will be putting together a tour of Egypt uh, for sometime next year. That hasn't been announced yet, but if people go to my website periodically, they'll learn about that and you know other possibilities, other opportunities. Also, I think I should say, um, can I mention Contact in the Desert? Please do. That was my next. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. I because I'll be at Contact in the Desert. When is it? Um, June first to June fourth. Does that sound right? Correct. Yeah, and I will be there. If people would like to um, talk with me personally, attend my uh, presentations. I'm going to be doing a panel discussion. I'm going to be doing a tribute to John Anthony West, who we mentioned, who got me right. involved in all this and became a very close friend. We knew each other almost, well, about 30 years, actually. And I'll be doing a tribute for him. I'll be talking about my um, recent research on solar outbursts and Zeptepe, which basically is the Egyptian term for the first time, which really goes back to the end of the last ice age and what I call this earlier cycle of civilization. So I'm very excited about it. I've been to contact in the desert before last year, I was uh, part of it, and I'm excited to go back and be part of it this year. And I definitely urge people to uh, keep up with uh, Dr. Shock's website. And who wouldn't love to have Dr. Shock as their guide in a place like Egypt? I, I can only oh, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> How fun you should that join would be. me. You should join me personally if you have a chance sometime. I, you know what? I I will definitely I, I will definitely shoot the, for that. The two of you, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But yeah, so if any, seriously, if anyone's interested, I don't have anything posted just at the moment, but I will 
very soon, maybe within the by the end of the month or so, uh, because I am planning another trip uh, to Egypt. You know, another trip that people can actually join. Sometimes I go and it's just for my own research and that type right. of thing. But this will be one that people uh, will be made, designed specifically to take people through Egypt and show them the um, great sites and the ancient mysteries and enigmas. That sounds amazing. And uh, we're going to jump back into our conversation here. I know, Genevieve, you wanted to, uh, to take over and grab the first question. Yeah, um, so uh, we did touch on Atlantis earlier on, and prior to that also um, Edgar Cayce. So uh, how does Edgar Cayce, a, um, presumably a clairvoyant, or at least um, said to be, how does he tie yeah. into this research? Well, first off, I want to say that I, I have known about Edgar Casey for a very long time. I first heard about Edgar Casey when I was, uh, I guess, a child, actually, because I'm interested in all kinds of things. But I didn't have a very strong opinion about Edgar Casey. I didn't really know anything about him in detail until... I want to say 92 or 93, because at that time, he was long passed away, Edgar Casey himself. And Edgar Casey, I forget what year he died, but, you know, it's been a while. But back in the early 1990s, uh, one of his sons was still alive. I had discovered a chamber with Thomas DeBecky, as we mentioned, under the left paw of the Sphinx. It didn't even cross my mind that this had anything to do potentially with Edgar Casey until I'm sitting, and I still remember it like it was yesterday, as the saying goes. I was sitting in my office at Boston University. The phone rings, old rotary dial phone, and I pick it up, and the person on the other end was uh, one of Edgar Casey's uh, sons, who you know was not young man at the time either, and he informed me that I had found he believed a hall of records under the Sphinx that Edgar Casey had predicted would be found in that vicinity, and that this was a hall of records, as Edgar Casey referred to it, that tied in with the Atlantis um, legend, and Casey was very into Atlantis and had his own interpretation of Atlantis, and that the Egyptians were in part refugees, if you would, from the lost continent of Atlantis, and he had said in one of his trances, you know, he went, he was known as a sleeping prophet, that um, there was a hall of records uh, around the Sphinx. I've since then spoken at the ARE, the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach, which is informally known sometimes as the Edgar Casey Foundation. Wonderful people, gotten to know a lot of people there, have uh, spoken to you know uh, people who knew Edgar Casey and whatnot. And I've got to say, you know, there was a lot to Edgar Casey. So. This is all really interesting and in that I seem to confirm, at least in some people's opinions, one of his uh, predictions or one of his uh, clairvoyant sightings, if you would, into the future of finding this and into the past that they had done this. Now, so that's all wonderful and dandy on the one level. On the other level, it hasn't necessarily helped me with my academic colleagues, because as you can imagine, a lot of my academic colleagues um, 
don't take well to people like Edgar Casey and psychics or whatever they want to call them. Right. And they've even accused me of, oh, you know, just going there and wanting to confirm Edgar Casey. Well, no, I didn't even know about that prediction of Edgar Casey until I was told it. And hindsight, I certainly wasn't going there to confirm Edgar Casey's predictions. And, you know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, you went there to confirm his predictions. And even if they don't say explicitly, the underlying assumption is, well, you faked data to be in collusion, as they like to talk about now with Trump, with the (laughs) Edgar Casey people. And, of course, I didn't do that. I mean, and as uh, the saying goes, the seismographs, the seismic data doesn't, you know, lie. It doesn't make things up, and we've got real data. And I didn't know about the Edgar Casey prediction. So on the one hand, it's wonderful with certain crowds. On the other hand, it doesn't help me, my credibility with other crowds. But, you know, the facts are the facts. Um, he predicted. I've confirmed that. I've actually seen the original records, which are in Virginia Beach to this day. They're published. Uh, it's very clear. He talked about this before I I guess before I was born, yeah, before I was born. Uh, So it's not something that someone made up in hindsight or claimed he predicted in hindsight. There is one little, um, if I remember correctly, there's one little twist to it. I think he's talked about the right paw, and we found it under the left paw. But in the context, I think what he was referring to, if you want to get really picky-yoon, is that when you look at the Sphinx, it's the paw on the right side when you're facing the Sphinx. I refer to that as the left paw because I think of the Sphinx as the entity, the lioness, and it's her left paw. And then on top of that, the new hieroglyphic evidence that just came out last year by um, Dr. Manu Saifzadeh, he really discovered it first, and then we all worked on it together, talks about it being an archive, or if you want to call it a hall of records, or a library under there that the Sphinx was guarding. So it all ties in with whether you like it or not, what Edgar Casey was suggesting. Let me ask you really quick before we move on to another aspect of the conversation. Um, looking at your books, there is one book that kind of stood out to me, and that is the book that you've written titled The Parapsychology Revolution, A Concise Anthology of Paranormal and Psychical Research. As you mentioned, you know, you're quite the academic. Your research is is incredible. What sparked your interest to go into this field that, as you mentioned, your colleagues and your peers don't even want to bother with this kind of stuff? Oh, they won't bother with that. They'll roll their eyes, et cetera. It's very funny, actually, because it's um, parapsychology. I'll use that term for it, psychical research. You can call it what you want. Um, is a much maligned field, and it's much maligned for a couple of reasons. One, it's so far out of the ordinary box, if you would. If, yeah, I'm thinking as an academic. It's also maligned, and I already mentioned this before the break, because, you know, there's a lot of people that fake this type of stuff. There are a lot of fake psychics out there. There's right. a lot of nonsense. I mean, there is so much nonsense. It's absolutely incredible. It sort of swamps the real thing. But when you look at the real thing, it's definitely there, et cetera. So I want to just make a couple of points and answer your question. Why did I get into it? 
Um, two simple reasons. One, I just think it's really interesting and really profound if there is something to it, and I'm convinced that there is something to it, both from my own anecdotal evidence, from my own experimental evidence, and from the vast literature on the subject. And it's just, it's really important. It's really profound because it's an aspect of nature, if you would, aspect of humans, aspect of the world, the cosmos, that is not generally acknowledged, but I think really changes our worldview, our paradigm. The second aspect to it is why did I get into it? Not just because it's interesting and fascinating, but the ancients the ancient Egyptians and many other ancient cultures, but I'm, I'll just refer to the ancient Egyptians right now. When you read their texts, when you look at their rationale for building things like pyramids, etc., it actually refers to psychic or parapsychological types of phenomena. They don't call it that, but it seems quite evident to me that they are referring to them. And when they're talking about all the different, what I call soul components, you know, the Ba and the Ka and all that type of thing, and uh, ancient Egypt, and they put so much emphasis on, you know, the life after death, as we would say it nowadays, and, you know, all these different metaphysical, if I could use that term, emphasis and essentially built a civilization around this, was this all based on total nonsense or did they know something and understand something that's sort of been lost on modern technological man, you know, in modern academia. So this was a question that was became very compelling for me and I got involved for those reasons in looking at serious psychic research, paranormal, um, psychical phenomena, parapsychological is sort of the more modern term for it, phenomena. And I went into this quite skeptical because that's the way I was trained, that it must be all nonsense. And the more I read and the more I looked at it, the more I convinced I became that there was something to it. I you know, the evidence is there. Originally, that book you're referring to, the anthology, was intended to be an anthology sort of not taking sides, being 50-50. There was going to be for every pro paper, there would be a con paper. Every paper that was supporting psychic phenomena, there would be a paper arguing against it, you know, because it's an anthology with 100 pages of um, commentary. So, right. you know, it's a book in a book, if you would. It turns out it wasn't that way because we could not find serious papers that disproved, if you would, or argued against psychic phenomena with good experimental evidence, et cetera, basically in the scientific literature, anti-psychic phenomena papers basically said, well, we know it, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially they said, well, we know it's not true, it can't be true by the understood laws of physics, et cetera, et cetera, so they must be faking it. It must be fraud. Well, that's not a good argument when you have serious researchers in numerous labs 
repeating the same experiments, getting similar statistically significant results to just say, well, they must all be fraud and they must all be conspiring with each other, even though they don't actually know each other, um, to get the same results. And then on top of that, these psychic phenomena correlate with things like um, geomagnetic flux in the environment. So somehow nature is also conspiring with the conspirators, human conspirators. It just got ludicrous to try to dismiss all of it. And yes, again, I get back to there are a lot of frauds. And you know, I've been at conferences and people come up to me and they start telling me about their psychic experiences. In some cases, it's very clear to me they're just trying to impress me. And I know enough about the, I know a lot about the topic. I'll be blunt. And I know that they're lying to me because that's not the way psychic phenomena really occur when they're genuine. And then there'll be other people that, yeah, I mean, they've had a real case. And then I wanted to make one more quick point. I live in an academic world, and I've had people roll their eyes about this, and they don't want to talk about it, and I don't bring it up you know, for certain purposes, and they, they all have to make their jokes about psychic phenomena. Then the same people, in some cases, when they're with me in private, what do they do? They start to tell me about their personal experiences. Wow. You know, so they've had their own personal experiences that then they want to share with me because they know that I take it seriously. But, you know, publicly in front of their colleagues, oh, they would never admit to that. And they have to follow the party line that, right. oh, you know, you can't talk about that and take it seriously. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's interesting. Again, a lot ties in with um, psychology and peer pressure and, you know, no one wants to look silly in front of their peers, so they all just say what they think other people want to hear and it's interesting. It's fun, I guess, in some ways. It's absolutely a shame. And going back to people such as Mark Lehner, who demanded more evidence of... Uh, oh, oh, I got to say one thing about Mark Lehner. Can I say one thing about Mark Lehner? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if you guys realize this, and not many people seem to realize it nowadays. Mark Lehner, why did he get involved in the Sphinx in Egypt in the first place? Because he was a member of the Edgar Casey Foundation. He was devoted to Edgar Casey's followings and teachings and that type of thing. And he went to Egypt initially explicitly, actually, supposedly to prove Edgar Cayce right. And then he was actually, I, I, my understanding is they helped fund his education, etc. Then at some point he just decided to become, you know, this wasn't good for him. And I don't know if, it, I, I suspect it was just personal, um, you know, sort of looking which way is the best way to go for your own personal I don't know, I hate to say benefit, uh, he, he flipped completely and became the most conventional Egyptologist in the world. Uh, sometimes think, you know, if you're people who are fanatical, they can be fanatical one way and then they flip and then they become the most fanatical the other way. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be nasty about him, but this is factual. And I think his worst nightmare, I was in some ways his worst nightmare because here I came onto the scene, you know, years and years later, in the early 90s, because he'd been working in Egypt for you know, a long time already and had started with the Edgar Casey Foundation. By the time I came on the scene, he had totally flipped, become a really conventional Egyptologist, um, and uh, had 
sort of, uh, uh, you know, dismissed and, and um, tried to distance himself from all the Edgar Casey stuff that he was supposed to be proving, but then went the other way. And then I come on the scene naively, and I found the chamber under the Sphinx, which Edgar Casey had predicted. And <laughs> <laughs> do you see how that could be a nightmare for him? Wow, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I so there's all very, you know, a lot of weird stuff. And I wasn't trying to prove Edgar Casey. I didn't even know it. I, you know, I just knew the name. I didn't know anything about Edgar Casey, and I didn't really care what Edgar Casey agreed. You know, dead, but you know his prophecies or whatever agreed with me or not didn't bother me. Versus Mark Lehner, he'd actually in his youth, back in the seventies, written a whole book. It's a nice little book, not a big book, but a book, and still in print, um, on Edgar Casey and um, his his uh, sayings about Atlantis and the Sphinx and all that type of thing. And I did want to ask about, you know, other evidence that would corroborate um, the findings on Sphinx, such as evidence found in the Valley Temple and how far it dates back, and obviously, um, Gudepi Tepe, no, I totally pronounced that wrong, but... <laughs> oh, Gebekli Tepe. Gebekli Tepe in Turkey. Gebekli Tepe. Yes, yes. How, so, how that relates to your research and how it supports it. Okay, so uh, let me, I'll give you the very, very brief version of this. Gebekli Tepe in Turkey is an incredibly sophisticated site. It's sort of like Stonehenge in the sense that there's stone circles there, Pillars arranged in circles, they call them enclosures, and they then have a couple of central pillars. And I illustrate and talk about this in my book, Forgotten Civilization. If people are going to buy one book of mine, and I hope they will, not because I'm trying to sell books, but I'm trying to get information out, they should go to my website and they can get find a link to Forgotten Civilization. So that's a book to go to. But Game back to Gebekli Tepe. I only mention that because I talk about all of this in the book. Uh, Gebekli Tepe is in southeastern Turkey. It's these wonderful, incredible stone pillars arranged in circles with uh, pairs of central pillars in the middle, sort of Stonehenge-like in the sense that Stonehenge is also a circle or ring of stone pillars, but Gebekli Tepe differs in that at Gebekli Tepe, the pillars are beautifully carved. They have uh, reliefs on them. Uh, there's even one sort of uh, feline that's in the round on one of the pillars. They're, they're just super, super sophisticated. And furthermore, they go back to the end of the last ice age. So you're talking about 12,000 uh, years or so ago, about 10,000 BC, the time I'm now talking about for the Sphinx. So Go back in time, not 10,000 B.C., but to 1991, 1992, 1993, arguments with people like the Egyptologists, like Mark Lehner, they were saying, well, where's some other evidence of sophisticated civilization at such an early time period? And they were saying, well, the Sphinx can't be that old because we don't have any evidence of anything else that old. Well, you have to find the first evidence somewhere, but they didn't like that argument. Now, Gebekli Tepe was not even discovered until several years after those arguments. If Gebekli Tepe had existed in the early 1990s and was, well, existed, of course, but was covered over with dirt and no one knew about it, um, if people had known about it, I would have been able to point to that. But at the time, all we had was 
the Sphinx, effectively. Now, all these years later, Gebekli Tepe was discovered by um, Herr Professor Dr. Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute. He spent a lot of time excavating. Unfortunately, he died prematurely a couple of years ago, but excavations do, I think, haltingly continue a little bit. He did quite a lot of work there. Um, it seems to have slowed down considerably since then. But we have uh, another piece of evidence of incredible sophistication civilization when it shouldn't occur according to the standard time frame. So the point is that the Sphinx is not in isolation. It's not just one anomalous uh, piece of evidence. Sometimes I use the analogy with either audiences or even my own students at Boston University that, you know, when there was a time when people didn't know about dinosaurs and for a while, every time the first dinosaur bone was discovered, there was no context for it. There was no other dinosaur bones, and people would just dismiss it as this worthless anomaly that they couldn't pay any attention to. Well, if you keep dismissing the first one of everything, it's you, you'll never have a second one. You see my point? Um, and that's essentially what they were trying to do with me. But Gebekli Tepe now is indisputable. It's... Um, it was covered over by 10,000 years ago. It's incredibly well-preserved. It's well-dated um, by a number of different means, including radiocarbon. It's actually, in many ways, a much superior situation in that respect over the Sphinx because the Sphinx goes back to this early period, but it was used and reused and reused again. So it's had a long history of change and modification. Gebekli Tepe was covered over uh, for the last 10,000 plus years and beautifully preserved. Dr. Schalk, I know we're running out of time and I just got one final question and um, it's by no means an easy question, I think, but I'm really interested to hear your take on this. There's uh, authors and researchers like Richard C. Hoagland and Graham Hancock who have made connections between the Sphinx and Egypt and the planet Mars. And I know that for some people, maybe that sounds way out there, no pun intended. But can you tell us a little bit about what the theory to that is? And do you find any valid evidence that would steer your own ideas and theories in that direction? First, I'll start by saying uh, this is primarily, I mean, there's other people that have been involved with it, and I've, I've, t I've known a lot of them and talked to a lot of them, uh, but it's, I want to give the credit or whatever we want to call it to Richard Hoagland, who I've known for many, many years. I've known him for a very, very long time, and you're talking about the, we'll call it the face on Mars. It's often referred to in Cydonia. Right. Um, that's that's what you're referring to, and then there's a DNM pyramid, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm look, put it this way: I'm quite familiar with that. Uh, do I go there personally? That there's a direct connection be the, between the Sphinx on Earth and the face on Mars, or he's actually done composite reconstructions where it's actually half human, half lion that type of thing. I know exactly what you're talking about, but uh, I tend to be more terrestrial bound, should we say. I understand. Uh, now, but let me say this. Do I think there's evidence for, um, uh, serious evidence for advanced 
technology, extraterrestrials out there. I could point to things like, I don't want to get into it now, but the wow signal that was found to the um, tabby star, as it's sometimes called. Um, there's evidence, I think, that we're not alone in the universe. I, I think there's probably life all over the universe and that there has been... Um, and why shouldn't there be, you know, advanced civilizations elsewhere? I think when you look at Mars and the evidence for Mars, we have plenty of evidence that there was water on Mars, that there was, it was a habitable planet at one point, that we um, may well had uh, not just life. I have no doubt that there was life on Mars, honestly. But when I say no doubt, my no doubt is bacterial level life, you know, single cell right. organism of life or minor multicellular organism of life. Cause I believe we have direct evidence for that and we could go into that. But if you have that, you probably had more advanced life. Did we have technological civilization on Mars? I don't know. Um, and I'm not really judging at the moment. Uh, you know, are we the Martians in the sense that there's, I'm talking serious scientists now suggesting that maybe life originated on Mars and then was transmitted to Earth. And there are mechanisms how, as to how that could have happened, et cetera. So I, th I think the bottom line is there's a lot we don't know. Uh, I think we have to look at these things seriously. That doesn't mean we have to uh, lose all um, you know, critical facilities and just jump on anything anyone says. And I've known Richard Hoagland a long time. I like him personally, and he have, and I have discussed many of these things. And I think he has some very interesting arguments. That doesn't mean I'm always convinced by all of them. But I don't know if that's a good or bad answer, but that's the honest answer. And, and that's, that's why it's a great an answer, because it's an honest answer. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you know, it's really humbling for us to have uh, a guest caliber to discuss well, thank you know, you. the research. Why don't you tell people one more time what your website is so they can learn more about you and order your books and remind folks that you will be at Contact in the Desert. I will be at Contact in the Desert, and that's um, well, less than a month now. So I'm hoping I will see people there. I'd love to talk with you personally, come to my presentations. I uh, hope you'll come to both of them. And my website is www.robert.com shock which is spelled r-o-b-e-r-t-s-c-h-o-c-h dot com so go to the website visit that often as i said um actually go there and you'll see uh, announcement for contact in the desert you can see my talks that i'll be giving and everything else that's going on amazing huge you know conference and as i said i take people to Egypt and elsewhere. I do tours, so I will be announcing future ones through my website and also um, other conferences I'll be speaking at, that type of thing. If people go to my website, they can also sign up for my, my mailing list to get first announcements about things. So again, www.robertschock.com. Very cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Shock. And uh, we should be in attendance at Contact in the Desert. And we'll be sure oh, to stop your presentation and say hello. Uh, we can't wait Excellent. to check them out. Excellent. I look forward to seeing you there. Awesome. Likewise. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Dr. Robert Shock, author, researcher extraordinaire. Uh, to say the least, I mean, the man's credentials are just astounding. And I meant it. I was incredibly honored to be able to ask 
these questions and hear his very honest and candid answers, which is really what you want in a scenario Honestly, like this. <laughs> I, I could have talked more and asked more questions. And I, I guess we're going to have to leave it for when we meet him or another interview. Yeah, and but definitely. But there is so much, so much research to dive into. And yeah, I guess it's difficult to give just a clear and succinct image of his research in such a short period of time. Yeah, I believe his latest book encompasses, I believe, something like his 20 or 30 years of research just on this topic. So it, yeah. it, it's definitely a, a big undertaking trying to, to have those 20, 30 years crammed into a two-hour show. However, we did our best and we hope we at least pique people's interest to research into this because you will find that researching the Sphinx is going to take you down some very strange and mysterious avenues that will lead to an ancient civilization, ancient technology, possibly Atlantis, possibly a link to the planet Mars. It's definitely fascinating and uh, definitely urge people, if they will be in the Southern California area, even if you're not, you can buy a plane ticket, get your tickets, go to Contact in the Desert, and you can... Uh, Meet Dr. Shock there, ask him some questions, check out his presentations, and uh, check out some of, the, uh, some of the presentations by the many great speakers they got lined up for this year. So that's contactinthedesert.com. I want to send a big shout out to them. They've always been great to us, and uh, we look forward to checking it out this year once again. Absolutely. Now, that being said, we're going to go out with a little bit of, uh, geez, I don't even know. Oh, yeah, here we go. We'll play some REM, one of their more rocking numbers. Can you believe that REM has oh, a rocking I was going to say REM, rocking. <laughs> Did you put those two words hey, in the same sentence? Let's not hate Oh, no, on I, REM. I honestly don't mind REM. It's, I, you know, it has its place, it has, I think. It's, it has Absolutely. its own vibe. Yeah, <laughs> it's like there's a day, when you there's wanna, a mood when, when for you REM. Go, when you want to go sit in your corner and cry yeah. about your religion, then yeah. that, that's the mood. <laughs> there you go. And actually, fun fact, I mean, I, I should probably Google this before I say it, but I'm too lazy and I'm just going to take a chance here. But I believe that a lot of people, including myself, erroneously believe that REM stood for Rapid Eye Movement, and that's why they named the, the band that. But if I remember correctly, that's not the case. So you can Google that. Tell me if I'm wrong or tell me if I'm right. You can tweet me at Engineer Frank on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. The website is WOTIRadio.com. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTIRadio. It actually stood for Ridiculously Edgy Men. Say one more time because I think it cut off. Ridiculously Edgy Men. I don't know. <laughs> I, I you, like know you know they could read anything into it after having established their name. Oh, right. I'm not sure. I think we're cutting out at this point. People yeah. obviously don't like us talking. I know, right? The, the, the powers that be, I think, are trying to show us that. No, yeah. but the, I could see you sitting there trying to come up with what the letters could possibly stand for. Anyways, uh, as always, I'm joined by Genevieve. You can find her on Twitter, at Genevieve Uway. And uh, Thursday nights right here on the independent.fm, hosting no added flavors, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. All right, guys. That being said, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. We're going to go out with REM, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Because believe it or not, there's some people that believe that the pyramids and the Sphinx were created by frequencies and acoustic levitation and things like that. Enjoy this one, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.